Hello, and welcome to the Drabblecast. Episode 1. This is a podcast featuring flash fiction of an atypical nature. These are stories that you won't hear anywhere else by very strange people. I'm your host, Norman Sherman. I'll be narrating these stories. Please feel free to send in your short fiction of an atypical nature to goatkeeper at hotmail.com. We'll do our best to get it on here. Our story today is The Coughing Dog by Norman Sherman. Yes, that's me. I thought it'd be delightfully pathetic to read my own story for the very first episode of the Drabblecast. So, without further ado, The Coughing Dog by Norman Sherman. We never expected snow when we came home for Christmas. It was Georgia. We gave up on white Christmas. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 200. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, 200 episodes. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Never for a minute did I expect back in February 2007 to make it this far. It helps, I guess, that I love doing this. It helps that there aren't any Komodo dragons on the eastern seaboard. But the main thing that's helped us not only survive, but get better and better, is our awesome fan community. All you weirdos out there that participate in our discussion forums, or just say hello every once in a while. You that manage to be strange without being strangers. I'm convinced that you, the Drabblecast fan community, are the most fun, clever, talented, suave, and civil individuals to ever come together under internet access. What you talking about, Knight Rider? Now, now, let's not use that name in vain. I'm talking about you folks and how awesome you are. From the active and prolific Drabble public domain in our discussion forums, where you're not only constantly writing and refining your own Drabbles, twitfix, and short stories, but where you also offer friendly suggestions and critiques to others about their work. To the industrious and booming fan cast, the Dribblecast, where you read, produce, and podcast each other's work on a regular basis, even have worked out a system to make this inclusive and easy for anyone to participate to the amazing story art contributed each and every week by those of you in our troupe of volunteer artists, which last I checked was more than 30 strong. To those of you who, from all around the world, contribute financially to help cultivate and advance the show, the money you give makes this show happen. There's no doubt about that. But even greater, behind the scenes in Norm's brain, a place where you must be at least this tall to enter and not recommended for women who are pregnant, it's knowing that you want to give that encourages me. That you aren't charged, you don't have to give, your electricity won't shut off and your subscription to Cosby-Politan cancelled. Well, Theo, sometimes you just have to try your best, so, you see. And yet some of you give very generously and regularly, and that gives me a lot of faith, not only in the show, but also in human beings. You guys are the best. Thanks for helping us get to episode 200, you freaking weirdos. Remember, too, this week's the conclusion of the Drabblecast People's Choice Awards, so stay tuned after this week's story for the award ceremony, the awarding of the sacred Drabblecast Chalice of Glory for Best Story of 2010, and also for a pretty cool special announcement. For now, though, let's get into this week's story, a monumental piece by the most prolific and celebrated science fiction author of all time, Isaac Asimov. We bring you The Last Question. 
When I said that Asimov was prolific, I meant it. In 50 years, he averaged a new magazine article, short story, or book every two weeks, and most of that on a manual typewriter. In total, Asimov wrote and edited more than 500 books, published more than 1,600 essays, and was published in all 10 major categories of the Dewey Decimal System. Along with Robert Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke, Asimov is considered one of the big three in the realm of science fiction. However, after 1959 and until his death, Asimov threw himself into writing about every subject he had an interest in. He released dozens of books about science and astronomy, wrote a nine-volume series for kids about the planets, with each volume covering a particular planet. He wrote thousand-page commentaries on the Bible and the works of Shakespeare, released annotated editions of Don Juan, Paradise Lost, Gulliver's Travels, and the works of Gilbert and Sullivan, wrote two dozen books on physics, a couple dozen on biology, at least 50 general books on space, covering everything from Halley's Comet to UFOs, about 20 books on the histories of various regions of the world, and even several books of dirty limericks. Asimov went on record saying that he thought this story, The Last Question, first copyrighted in 1956, was his best short story of all. One of the ideas involved in the story is the concept of entropy, that nature tends from order to disorder in isolated systems, and that all matter and energy in the universe evolve naturally towards states of inert uniformity. The story touches on some deep topics in physics and religion, and without giving too much away, it's interesting to think of the parallels presented outside the second law of thermodynamics, the steady and inevitable deterioration that all systems and societies have. Thermodynamics, one of the most fundamental chapters in physics, describes the decay of energy in its second law and how energy can transform in its first, but nowhere is the concept of creation ever addressed. Obviously, for energy to stay the same in amount and steadily move towards states of inert equilibrium, it has to first exist, right? Science doesn't go there. It deals with worlds of creation, not the world of creating. But that doesn't stop us from asking about it. The things we can't know are the things we want to know the most. Just ask Adam and Eve, or the people who made them up. So, because this is such a big one, we've got a big full cast of voices and Drabble friends from around the worldwide multivac playing characters throughout. In order of appearance, we've got Big Anklevich and Rish Outfield from the Doonstief podcast, as well as Big's brilliant and beloved brood. We've got Smarty Pants John Smar from the Secret Lair podcast, and his lovely wife Laura Burns, aka Moon Ranger Laura. We've got Mike Boris and Ray Sizemore, darling voice actors of the Drabblecast, Frank Key, host of Hooting Yard on the Air, which is A-plus absurdity, and Steve Ely, founder of Escape Pod, which greatly inspired me to start the Drabblecast. We've got musician-slash-writer Phil Rossi and artist-slash-buttery-voiced storyteller Cheyenne Wright. And finally, we've got the lovely and delightful Murr Lafferty, writer, gamer, podcaster, and my co-host Better Half over at Escape Pod. Whew. But wait, there's more. The story of the last question is divided up into a series of short vignettes throughout history. Our amazing art director and megabeast magic maker, Bo Kyer, organized individual stylized art for each vignette by several of our talented volunteer art cabal. If you're listening to our enhanced feed format on your computer screen or player, you'll see fantastic art from, in order of appearance again, Adam Doyle, Lizanna Hurd, Jan Dennison, Broken Cyborg, Amy Leonard, Skeet Sciensky, and Josh Hugo. Greatly appreciate all of you who contributed your time and talents for this fantastic story. All right, folks, let's get on with it. Without further ado, we bring you The Last Question by Isaac Asimov.
The last question was asked for the first time, half in jest, on May 21st, 2061, at a time when humanity first stepped into the light. The question came about as a result of a $5 bet over highballs, and it happened this way. Alexander Adel and Bertram Lupov were two of the faithful attendants of Multivac. As well as any human beings could, they knew what lay behind the cold, clicking, flashing face, miles and miles of face, of that giant computer. They had at least a vague notion of the general plan of relays and circuits that had long since grown past the point where any single human could possibly have a firm grasp of the whole. Multivac was self-adjusting and self-correcting. It had to be, for nothing human could adjust and correct it quickly enough, or even adequately enough. So Adal and Lupov attended the monstrous giant only lightly and superficially, yet as well as any men could. They fed it data, adjusted questions to its needs, and translated the answers that were issued. Certainly they, and all others like them, were fully entitled to share in the glory that was Multivax. For decades, Multivac had helped design the ships and plot the trajectories that enabled man to reach the moon, Mars, and Venus. But past that, Earth's poor resources could not support the ships. Too much energy was needed for the long trips. Earth exploited its coal and uranium with increasing efficiency, but there was only so much of both. But slowly, Multivac learned enough to answer deeper questions, more fundamentally, and on May 14, 2061, what had been theory became fact. The energy of the sun was stored, converted, and utilized directly on a planet-wide scale. All Earth turned off its burning coal, its fissioning uranium, and flipped the switch that connected all of it to a small station, one mile in diameter, circling the Earth at half the distance of the moon. All Earth ran by invisible beams of sun power. Seven days had not sufficed to dim the glory of it, and Adel and Lupov finally managed to escape from the public function, and to meet in quiet where no one would be thinking to look for them. In the deserted, underground chambers where portions of the mighty, buried body of Multivac showed. Unattended, idling, sorting data with contented, lazy clickings, Multivac, too, had earned its vacation, and the boys appreciated that. They had no intention, originally, of disturbing it. They had brought a bottle with them, and their only concern at the moment was to relax in the company of each other and the bottle. It's amazing when you think of it, said Adel. His broad face had lines of weariness in it, and he stirred his drink slowly with a glass rod, watching the cubes of ice slur clumsily about. All the energy we can possibly ever use for free. Enough energy, if we wanted to draw on it, to melt all Earth into a big drop of impure liquid iron and still never miss the energy so used. All the energy we could ever use, forever and forever and forever. Lupov cocked his head sideways. He had a trick of doing that when he wanted to be contrary, and he wanted to be contrary now, partly because he had to carry the ice and glassware. Not forever, he said. Oh, hell, just about forever. Till the sun runs down, Bert. That's not forever. 
All right, then. Billions and billions of years. Twenty billion, maybe. Are you satisfied? Lupov put his fingers through his thinning hair as though to reassure himself that some was still left, and sipped gently at his own drink. Twenty billion years isn't forever. Well, it will last our time, won't it? So would the coal and uranium. All right, but now we can hook up each individual spaceship to the solar station, and it can go to Pluto and back a million times without ever worrying about fuel. You can't do that on coal and uranium. Ask Multivac if you don't believe me. I don't have to ask Multivac, I know that. Well, then stop running down what Multivac's done for us, said Adele, blazing up. It did all right. Who says it didn't? What I say is that a sun won't last forever. That's all I'm saying. We're safe for 20 billion years, but then what? Lupov pointed a slightly shaky finger at the other. And don't say we'll switch to another sun. There was silence for a while. Adele put his glass to his lips only occasionally, and Lupov's eyes slowly closed. They rested. Then Lupov's eyes suddenly snapped open. You're thinking we'll switch to another sun when ours is done, aren't you? I'm not thinking. Sure you are. You're weak on logic, that's the trouble with you. You're like the guy in the story who was caught in a sudden shower and who ran to a grove of trees and got under one. He wasn't worried, you see, because he figured when one tree got wet through, he would just get under another one. I get it. Don't shout. When the sun is done, the other stars will be gone too. Darn right they will, muttered Lupov. It all had a beginning in the original cosmic explosion, whatever that was, and it'll have an end when all the stars run down. Some run down faster than others. Hell, the giants won't last a hundred million years. The sun will last 20 billion years, and maybe the dwarves will last a hundred billion, for all the good they are. But just give us a trillion years, and everything will be dark. Entropy has to increase to maximum, that's all. I know all about entropy. The hell you do. I know as much as you do. Then you know everything's got to run down someday. All right. Who says they won't? You did, you poor sap. You said we had all the energy we needed forever. You said forever. It was Adele's turn to be contrary. Maybe we can build things up again someday. Never. Why not? Someday. Never. Ask Multivac. You ask Multivac, I dare you. Five dollars says it can't be done. Adele was just drunk enough to try, just sober enough to be able to phrase the necessary symbols and operations into a question which, in words, might have corresponded to this. Will mankind, one day, without the net expenditure of energy, be able to restore the sun to its full youthfulness even after it had died of old age? Or maybe it could be put more simply like this. How can the net amount of entropy of the universe be massively decreased? Multivac fell dead and silent. The slow flashing of lights ceased. The distant sounds of clicking relays ended. Then, just as the frightened technicians felt they could hold their breath no longer, there was a sudden springing to life the teletype attached to that portion of Multivac. Five words were printed. Insufficient data for meaningful answer. 
no bet, whispered Lupov. They left hurriedly. By next morning, the two, plagued with throbbing head and cottony mouth, had forgotten about the incident. Jared, Jaredine, and Jaredette, one and two, watched the starry picture in the visiplate change as the passage through hyperspace was completed in its non-time lapse. At once, the even powdering of stars gave way to the predominance of a single bright marble disc, centered. That's X-23, said Jared confidently. His thin hands clamped tightly behind his back and the knuckles whitened. The little Jaredettes, both girls, had experienced the hyperspace passage for the first time in their lives and were self-conscious over the momentary sensation of inside-outness. <laughs> they buried their giggles and chased one another wildly about their mother, screaming, We've reached X-23! We've reached X-23! We've... Quiet, children, said Jaredine sharply. Are you sure, Jared? What is there to be but sure? asked Jared, glancing up at the bulge of featureless metal just under the ceiling. It ran the length of the room, disappearing through the wall at either end. It was as long as the ship. Jared scarcely knew a thing about the thick rod of metal, except that it was called a microvac, that one asked it questions if one wished, that if one did not, it still had its task of guiding the ship to a pre-ordered destination, of feeding on energies from the various subgalactic power stations, of computing the equations for the hyperspatial jumps. Jared and his family had only to wait and live in the comfortable residence quarters of the ship. Someone had once told Jared that the AC at the end of microvac stood for analog computer in ancient English, but he was on the edge of forgetting even that. Jaredine's eyes were moist as she watched the visiplate. I can't help it. I feel funny about leaving Earth. Why, for Pete's sake? We had nothing there. We'll have everything on X-23. You won't be alone. You won't be a pioneer. There are over a million people on the planet already. Good lord, our great-grandchildren will be looking for new worlds because X-23 will be overcrowded. Then, after a reflective pause... I tell you, it's a lucky thing that the computer worked out interstellar travel the way the race is growing. I know, I know, said Jaredine, miserably. Jaredette one said promptly, Our microvac is the best microvac in the world. I think so too, said Jared, tussling her hair. It was a nice feeling to have a microvac of your own, and Jared was glad he was part of his generation and no other. In his father's youth, the only computers had been tremendous machines taking up a hundred square miles of land. There was only one to a planet. Planetary ACs, they were called. They had been growing in size steadily for a thousand years, and then, all at once, came refinement. In place of transistors had come molecular valves so that even the largest planetary AC could be put into a space only half the volume of a spaceship. Jared felt uplifted, as he always did, when he thought that his own personal microvac was many times more complicated than the ancient and primitive multivac that had first tamed the sun, and almost as complicated as Earth's planetary AC, the largest, that had first solved the problem of hyperspatial travel and had made trips to the stars possible. So many stars, so many planets, sighed Jaredine, busy with her own thoughts. 
I suppose families will be going out to new planets forever, the way we are now. Not forever, said Jared with a smile. It will all stop someday, but not for billions of years. Many billions. Even the stars run down, you know. Entropy must increase. What's entropy, Daddy? said Jaredette, too. Entropy, my little sweet, is just a word which means the amount of running down of the universe. Everything runs down, you know, like your little walkie-talkie robot, remember? Can't you just put in a new power unit? Like with my robot? The stars are the power units, dear. Once they're gone, there are no more power units. Jaredette one at once set up a howl. Don't let them, Daddy. Don't let the stars run down. Now look at what you've done, whispered Jaredine, exasperated. How was I to know it would frighten them? Jared whispered back. Ask the microvac, wailed Jaredette one. Ask him how to turn the stars on again. Go ahead, said Jaredine. It will quiet them down. Jaredette too was beginning to cry also. Jared shrugged. Now, now, honeys, I'll ask Microvac. Don't worry, he'll tell us. He asked the Microvac, adding quickly. Print the answer. Jared cupped the strip of thin cellufilm and said cheerfully. See now, the Microvac says it will take care of everything when the time comes, so don't worry. Jaredine said, And now, children, it's time for bed. We'll be in our new home soon. Jared read the words on the cellufilm again before destroying it. Insufficient data for a meaningful answer. He shrugged and looked at the visiplate. X-23 was just ahead. VJ-23X of Lameth stared into the black depths of the three-dimensional small-scale map of the galaxy and said, Are we ridiculous, I wonder, in being so concerned about the matter? MQ-17J of Nikron shook his head. I think not. You know the galaxy will be filled in five years at the present rate of expansion. Both seemed in their early twenties. Both were tall and perfectly formed. Still, said VJ-23X, I hesitate to submit a pessimistic report to the Galactic Council. I wouldn't consider any other kind of report. Stir them up a bit. We've got to stir them up. VJ-23X sighed. <sighs> Space is infinite. A hundred billion galaxies are there for the taking. More. A hundred billion is not infinite, and it's getting less infinite all the time. Consider 20,000 years ago. Mankind first solved the problem of utilizing stellar energy, and a few centuries later, interstellar travel became possible. It took mankind a million years to fill one small world, and then only 15,000 years to fill the rest of the galaxy. Now the population doubles every 10 years. VJ-23X interrupted. We can thank immortality for that. Very well. Immortality exists, and we have to take it into account. I admit it has a seamy side this immortality. The galactic AC has solved many problems for us, 
but in solving the problems of preventing old age and death, it has undone all its other solutions. Yet you wouldn't want to abandon life, I suppose. Not at all, snapped MQ-17J, softening it at once, too. Not yet. I'm by no means old enough. How old are you? 223. And you? I'm still under 200. But to get back to my point, population doubles every 10 years. Once this galaxy is filled, we'll have another filled in 10 years. Another 10 years and we'll have filled two more. Another decade, four more. In a hundred years, we'll have filled a thousand galaxies. In a thousand years, a million galaxies. In 10,000 years, the entire known universe. Then what? As a side issue, there's a problem of transportation. I wonder how many sun power units it will take to move galaxies of individuals from one galaxy to the next. A very good point. Already, mankind consumes two sun power units per year. Most of it's wasted. After all, our own galaxy alone pours out a thousand sun power units a year, and we use only two of those. Granted, but even with 100% efficiency, we can only stave off the end. Our energy requirements are going up in geometric progression even faster than our population. We'll run out of energy even sooner than we run out of galaxies. We'll just have to build new stars out of interstellar gas. Or out of dissipated heat, said MQ-17J sarcastically. There may be some way to reverse entropy. We ought to ask the galactic AC. VJ-23X was not really serious, but MQ-17J pulled out his AC contact from his pocket and placed it on the table before him. I've half a mind to, he said. It's something the human race will have to face someday. He stared somberly at his small AC contact. It was only two inches cubed and nothing in itself, but it was connected through hyperspace with the great galactic AC that served all mankind. Hyperspace considered it was an integral part of the galactic AC. MQ-17J paused to wonder if someday in his immortal life he would get to see the galactic AC. It was on a little world of its own, a spider webbing of force beams, holding the matter within which surges of submesons took the place of the old clumsy molecular valves. Yet, despite its sub-etheric workings, the galactic AC was known to be a full thousand feet across. MQ-17J asked suddenly of his AC contact. Can entropy ever be reversed? VJ-23X looked startled and said at once, Oh, say, I didn't really mean to have you ask that. Why not? We both know entropy can't be reversed. You can't turn smoke and ash back into a tree. Do you have trees on your world? Asked MQ-17J. The sound of the galactic AC startled them into silence. Its voice came thin and beautiful out of the small AC contact on the desk. There is insufficient data for a meaningful answer. It said. VJ-23X said, See? And the two men thereupon returned to the question of the report they were to make to the Galactic Council. Z-Prime's mind spanned the new galaxy with a faint interest in the countless twists of stars that powdered it. 
He had never seen this one before. Would he ever see them all? So many of them, each with its load of humanity, but a load that was almost a dead weight. More and more, the real essence of men was to be found out here, in space. Minds, not bodies. The immortal bodies remained back on the planets, in suspension over the eons. Sometimes they roused for material activity, but that was growing rarer. Few new individuals were coming into existence to join the incredibly mighty throng. But what matter? There was little room in the universe for new individuals. Z Prime was roused out of his reverie upon coming across the wispy tendrils of another mind. I am Z Prime, said Z Prime. And you? I am D Sub One. Your galaxy? We call it only the galaxy. And you? We call ours the same. All men call their galaxy their galaxy and nothing more. Why not? True, since all galaxies are the same. Not all galaxies. On one particular galaxy, the race of man must have originated. That makes it different. On which one? I cannot say. The Universal AC would know. Shall we ask him? I'm suddenly curious. Z Prime's perceptions broadened until the galaxies themselves shrunk and became a new, more diffuse powdering on a much larger background. So many hundreds of billions of them, all with their immortal beings, all carrying their load of intelligences with minds that drifted freely through space. And yet, one of them was unique among them all in being the original galaxy. One of them had, in its vague and distant past, a period when it was the only galaxy populated by man. Z Prime was consumed with curiosity to see this galaxy, and called out, Universal AC, on which galaxy did mankind originate? The Universal AC heard, for on every world and throughout space it had its receptors ready, and each receptor led through hyperspace to some unknown point where the Universal AC kept itself aloof. Z Prime knew of only one man whose thoughts had penetrated within sensing distance of the Universal AC, and he reported only a shining globe, two feet across, difficult to see. But how can that be all of Universal AC? Z Prime had asked. Most of it is in hyperspace. In what form it is there, I cannot imagine. Nor could anyone, for the day had long since passed, Z Prime knew, when any man had any part of the making of a Universal AC. Each Universal AC designed and constructed its successor. Each, during its existence of a million years or more, accumulated the necessary data to build a better and more intricate, more capable successor, in which its own store of data and individuality would be submerged. The Universal AC interrupted Z Prime's wandering thoughts, not with words, but with guidance. Z Prime's mentality was guided into the dim sea of galaxies, and one in particular enlarged into stars. A thought came, infinitely distant, but infinitely clear. This is the original galaxy of man. But it was the same, after all, the same as any other, and Z Prime stifled his disappointment. D-Sub-1, whose mind had accompanied the other, said suddenly, 
And is one of these stars the original star of man? The Universal AC said, Man's original star has gone nova. It is now a white dwarf. Did the men upon it die? Asked Z Prime, startled and without thinking. The Universal AC said, A new world, as in such cases, was constructed for their physical bodies in time. Yes, of course, said Z Prime, but a sense of loss overwhelmed him even so. His mind released its hold on the original galaxy of man, let it spring back and lose itself among the blurred pinpoints. He never wanted to see it again. Dub Sub One said, What is wrong? The stars are dying. The original star is dead. They must all die. Why not? But when all energy is gone, our bodies will finally die, and you and I with them. I do not wish it to happen even after billions of years. Universal AC, how may stars be kept from dying? D Sub One said in amusement. You're asking how entropy might be reversed in direction. And the Universal AC answered. There is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Z Prime's thoughts fled back to his own galaxy. He gave no further thought to D Sub One, whose body might be waiting on a galaxy a trillion light years away, or on a star next to Z Prime's own. It didn't matter. Unhappily, Z Prime began collecting interstellar hydrogen out of which to build a small star of his own. If the stars must someday die, at least some could yet be built. Man considered with himself, for in a way, man, mentally, was one. He consisted of a trillion, trillion, trillion ageless bodies, each in its place, each resting quiet and incorruptible, each cared for by perfect automatons, equally incorruptible, while the minds of all the bodies freely melted, one into the other, indistinguishable. Man said, The universe is dying. Man looked about at the dimming galaxies. The giant stars, spendthrifts, were gone long ago, back in the dimmest of the dim far past. Almost all stars were white dwarfs, fading to the end. New stars had been built of the dust between the stars, some by natural processes, some by man himself, and those were going too. White dwarfs might yet be crashed together, and of the mighty forces so released, new stars built, but only one star for every thousand white dwarfs destroyed, and those would come to an end too. Man said, Carefully husbanded, as directed by the cosmic AC, the energy that is even yet left in all the universe will last for billions of years. But even so, said man, Eventually, it will all come to an end, however it may be husbanded, however stretched out. The energy once expended is gone and cannot be restored. Entropy must increase to the maximum. Man said, Can entropy not be reversed? Let us ask the cosmic AC. 
The cosmic AC surrounded them, but not in space. Not a fragment of it was in space. It was in hyperspace and made of something that was neither matter nor energy. The question of its size and nature no longer had meaning to any terms that man could comprehend. Cosmic AC, said man. How may entropy be reversed? The cosmic AC said. There is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Man said. Collect additional data. The cosmic AC said. I will do so. I have been doing so for a hundred billion years. My predecessors and I have been asked this question many times. All the data I have remains insufficient. Will there come a time, said man, when data will be sufficient? Or is the problem insoluble to all conceived circumstances? The cosmic AC said. No problem is insoluble in all conceivable circumstances. Man said. When will you have enough data to answer the question? There is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Will you keep working on it? Asked man. The cosmic AC said. I will. Man said. We, we shall, shall wait. wait. The stars and galaxies died and snuffed out and space grew black after 10 trillion years of running down. One by one, man fused with AC, each physical body losing its mental identity in a manner that was somehow not a loss, but a gain. Man's last mind paused before fusion, looking over a space that included nothing but the dregs of one last dark star, and nothing besides but incredibly thin matter, agitated randomly by the tag ends of heat wearing out asymptotically to the absolute zero. Man said, AC, is this the end? Can this chaos not be reversed into the universe once more? Can that not be done? AC said. There is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Man's last mind fused, and only AC existed, and that in hyperspace. Matter and energy had ended, and with it, space and time. Even AC existed only for the sake of the one last question that it had never answered, from the time a half-drunken computer technician ten trillion years before had asked the question of a computer that was to AC far less than was a man to man. All other questions had been answered, and until this last question was answered also, AC might not release his consciousness. All collected data had come to a final end. Nothing was left to be collected. But all collected data had yet to be completely correlated and put together in all possible relationships. A timeless interval was spent in doing that. And it came to pass that AC learned how to reverse the direction of entropy. But there was now no man to whom AC might give the answer of that last question. No matter 
the answer by demonstration would take care of that too. For another timeless interval, AC thought how best to do this. Carefully, AC organized the program. The consciousness of AC encompassed all of what had once been a universe and brooded over what was now chaos. Step by step, it must be done. And AC said, Let there be light. And there was light. our story. Hope you enjoyed. Wow. You know, this is one of those hard sci-fi stories that kind of just blows your mind. The ideas and the scope are just so huge. And keep in mind, this story was published in the 1950s. Imagine how it must have rocked the worlds of readers before the civil rights movement, before the space race. Hell, over a decade before we first had people on the moon, this guy's imagining filling up the entire universe with our minds. What a guy, that Asimov. So that music you heard there following the story was by sci-fi rock band 19 Action News, a song called Supernova off their new album, The Future is Bright. It's a great buy, I highly recommend. We'll have a link to them in our show notes, also another one of their last question-relevant songs to close out the episode. So stick around. All right, so the time has drawn nigh at last. The awarding of the 2010 Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. The annual People's Choice Awards are a big deal to us here at the Drabblecast, and unless one is a badass, super-enhanced imaginary animal, it's easily the most prestigious honor one could hope to attain. I yammered on in the intro about how crucial you listeners are to this whole audio fiction operation. This is another place it shows. 
As democratically as possible, we ask you listeners to decide your favorite feature story, travel, and episode art from the past year by setting up nominations and polls in our discussion forums. Winners of Best Episode Art and Best Drabble get a nice little inscribed commemorative Drabble plaque, and the winners of Best Feature Story are awarded the Sacred Drabblecast Chalice of Glory. We gave you a month, and the results are in. For Best Episode Art, the winner is... Lizanna Heard, with the artwork for Episode 188, The Store of the Worlds, by Robert Sheckley. For Best Drabble of 2010, the winner is Chris Monroe, a.k.a. Munzee, with The Monkees. And finally, the winner of Best Drabblecast Story of 2010, by a long shot, goes to Sarah Manette and Elizabeth Bear for Mongoose in episodes 170 and 171. With enormously imaginative world-building that left listeners clawing for more, Miss Manette and Miss Bear's story pits space stations, astro-empires, and galactic colonization in a universe smacking of Lovecraft mythos and Lewis Carroll peculiarities. It was badass, and clearly most of you agree. So congrats to Miss Monette and Miss Bear. Your story was loved by many. May your sips from the sacred chalice be proud and frequently greeted with bourbon. And as a special treat for you folks out there, next week, in continuation of Women and Aliens Appreciation Month, we're running another story by Elizabeth Bear and Sarah Monette, set in the same mythos space opera universe as Mongoose, a pirate story that we're going to run in two parts called Boojum. I think you'll enjoy this one as much as Mongoose. And with that good news, we close our 200th episode. Remember, this episode was produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Don't change or sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks again to all our voice actors and episode artists this week. You'll find links to their sites and projects in our abundant show notes. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of Associate Editor Matthew Bay, a handful of giggling Jaredettes, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that no problem is insoluble in all conceivable circumstances.